Greetings, friends. Let us prepare to listen as we study God's word in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. From Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we see that the favor of God comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, this type of hunger is characteristic of all of God's people. And hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness widely affects the world we live in today, both morally and socially. We are continuing in the new series that we began a few weeks ago, the series in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I, I want to start with a bit of a recap. Um, I don't know if you ever watch any, like if you binge watch any of these series on, um, you know, Netflix or, or um, Amazon Prime or whatever. But, you know, you, you always get a recap of the, the previous episode to lead you into the, the newest episode. And I think as we're, we're making our way through the sermon, we, we do need that recap just to catch ourselves up on what has been said up to this point. And so let me remind you that this sermon... And we're looking specifically, we know right now, at the beginning of the sermon, but the sermon is not instructions on how to get into the kingdom. That's an important thing to remember. God invites us into his kingdom. So we don't, as, as we know, we don't work our way into the kingdom of God. God invites us into his kingdom because King Jesus has made that way possible through his own life, death, and resurrection. He has opened up the kingdom and invited any and all to come in. What Jesus is saying is this. Now that I am here, God's new world is coming into being and these are the habits of heart which anticipate the new world here and now. You know, this is something that I think for a long time, uh, Christians haven't caught this vitally important point. That when Jesus came, remember when Jesus came, he said, um, he said, repent or turn for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, so Jesus was introducing, he was bringing the kingdom when he came. And so ever since Jesus came, the kingdom has been here, but of course it hasn't been here in its fullness and won't be here in its fullness until the Lord returns. But, but I think it's an important thing to remember that the kingdom is here presently. And these qualities, poverty of spirit, purity of heart, mercy, and so on, are not the things you do or have to do to earn your way into God's favor, nor are they merely the rules of conduct now that you've become a Christian. They are themselves signs of life, the life of the kingdom of God, the life which Jesus came to bring. Now, in the past uh, Two messages Char has 
quoted from Jochum Jeremias, and I think this is really a great quote, so I want to read it to you again. I think he, he does a, a really good job of summarizing what we're talking about here. He says, what Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of the disciples, and it is not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here are symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. You see, that's what the church is to be. The church is to be a sign to the world that something's happened. Something's happened in, in the world. The kingdom of God has already, to a certain degree, invaded the world. And, of course, when I say the church, I'm speaking of us collectively, but, but this would speak of our lives individually as well. When people see us, when people listen to us, when people uh, observe the way we live, they ought to think something has happened here. So as we saw last time, the sermon begins with these nine pronouncements of blessing, the ones we just read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. And as was pointed out, uh, these are commonly called the Beatitudes. And they're called the Beatitudes because they speak of um, happy. And, and so uh, the word that Beatitudes comes from is a Latin word that means happy. And so maybe you don't realize this, but the New Testament, of course, was originally in, um, written in Greek. But in the early centuries of the church, it was, it was translated into Latin. And uh, the Latin became, in some cases, the, the dominant text for a long period of time. And so you would have um, you know, this, this back and forth between the Greek and the Latin. So occasionally a Latin um, term would, would stick. And so here the, the Latin term um, butte is, is happy and so we would come with this, um, this idea of happiness or, or, the, or the Beatitudes, the happy, uh, the happy ones. So again, as was pointed out, the Greek word translated blessed is uh, makarios. Now, makarios, here, here's the thing. Makarios does mean happy. Now, remember, th this is the Greek language. So there's nothing uh, necessarily spiritual about the language, right? It's just like the English language. It just depends on who's using the language at this time. So God happens to be using the language at this time. So in uh, common Greek uh, conversation, makarios uh, would, would mean happy, would mean fortunate, would mean well off. But it also had potentially a much 
deeper meaning. And so makarios refers to a, a deep inner happiness. And, th and that's the way it's used in the Bible. A state of human flourishing, a supreme blessedness. It is used in the Bible and specifically here in these verses for the bestowal of divine favor. So when you think of the word blessed, think of it in the sense of it's referring to the bestowal of divine favor upon a person's life. And so we could translate, oh, how favored. But the favor is, of course, divine favor. Oh, how favored and therefore happy, flourishing, and supremely blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and right on through. So lastly, as we're recapping here, in the first three Beatitudes, Jesus taught us those who are poor, and remember, poor in spirit, so meaning that they recognize their own spiritual poverty and their need for God, the brokenhearted who mourn over sin and brokenness, and the lowly and humble people are the ones who are truly blessed. To them, ultimately, belongs the kingdom of God. So this, as, as Char pointed out, this is so counterintuitive. This is so the opposite of the thinking of the day. The Romans despised weakness and poverty. And the, the idea of a person being humble or meek was uh, detestable to the Roman, to the Roman way of thinking. So Jesus here is really, um, he's presenting what would be from the world's point of view, uh, an upside down kingdom. So that brings us now to the next in our list of Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, Jesus here, as we can see, he's using extreme language. To hunger and thirst. He's talking about real uh, hunger and, and a real thirst. He's talking about someone who's, who um, is not going to be satisfied with anything uh, less than something to fulfill them. So uh, this is a quality or character of those who have put their trust in him. They hunger and thirst. They have an intense longing. That's the idea, the hunger and thirst. The idea is the, the longing is intense. And that longing will not be met by anything less than their deepest heart's desire for righteousness. So we're talking about a, a deep longing, a deep yearning, and it's hungering and thirsting now for righteousness. So what is, 
what is that actually referring to? Well, I think, um, I think it's probably multi-layered. Uh, because as we're gonna see, the word righteousness has a, a variety of different meanings in, in one sense as you look at its use in scripture. So there are at least three different um, ways that we can understand righteousness. But before we jump into that, um, let me quote to you from John Stott regarding this, this idea of hungering and, and thirsting. He says, the hungry and thirsty whom God satisfies are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Such spiritual hunger is a characteristic of all God's people whose supreme ambition is not material but spiritual. Christians are not like pagans engrossed in the pursuit of possessions what they have set themselves to seek first is God's kingdom and his righteousness. So, so this is the, the description of the Christian. The longing is for not the, the material, but the longing is a spiritual longing for righteousness. So righteousness in the Bible has at least three aspects to it. It has the legal aspect, the moral aspect, and the social. So let's look at each one of those. So the legal, when we think of righteousness in the sense of the legal aspect, it, that would be what we call justification. Justification meaning to be put in a right relationship with God. So many times in the New Testament, when you read the word righteousness, the context is going to be that. It's going to be the legal righteousness. Um, it's going to be referring to our having been put right with God. Uh, over and over again in Paul's writings, you find references to this legal uh, righteousness. Two examples, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said this, God made him, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we are made the righteousness of God. In other words, we are uh, given the righteousness that God requires. We are brought into a right relationship with God through what Christ did. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaking of himself he said that his desire was that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So Paul's position is that he, he desires to have this righteousness, this standing before God, uh, that is based on what Christ has done. So that's the legal aspect of righteousness. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, on this level, he's talking about those who long to be right with God. Those who recognize, like we go back to the first beatitude, poor in spirit. The poor in spirit is the person who recognizes, 
I do not have the spiritual currency that is necessary to come before God. I, I must be uh, given a righteousness beyond what I have. So that's what is being um, spoken of here on one level. I think that that could be said. But secondly, there is moral righteousness. Legal righteousness would be something that one would long for as they're coming into that place of, of being right with God. Moral righteousness would be something that would be longed for from the position of being in a relationship with God, but also recognizing the need to grow more into the likeness of Jesus. So moral righteousness is that righteousness of character and conduct which pleases God. The longing to grow in grace. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The, the person who is longing to grow in grace, the person who knows that they're saved, they're thankful that they're saved, they know that they haven't saved themselves or they're not trying to save themselves, but at the same time, they also recognize that they need to be more like Jesus. The longing to be conform more and more into the image of Christ. The longing to please God in every area of our lives. The longing to please God in every area of our lives. So this is, this is something that Jesus says is, is going to be characteristic of his people. That within us there is this this constant longing, it, it's kind of a paradox because on one level, we are completely content and secure in the fact that we are saved, but then on another level, we are discontent because we want to go further. We want to be more like Jesus. And I think every serious Christian knows this, um, this dilemma. On the one hand, yes, I know that I'm saved and I'm safe and secure in Christ and I'm not having to work my way into God's favor, but I look at my life and I think, you know, there's so many areas where I'm still needing to be like Jesus. So I'm longing for that. That's what Jesus is talking about, hungering and thirsting for righteousness as a child of God. So that's the moral righteousness. But then there is also social righteousness. And this is the place that I think many, many evangelicals, Bible uh, believing Christians over the past, say, uh, maybe 100 years have 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 kind of missed this this critical component again listen to john stott and for those of you that don't know you know sometimes we throw these names up here these quotes and <laughs> you're like okay who the heck is that uh well john stott was a great uh one of the great evangel 
evangelical leaders um, in Britain throughout much of the 20th century. He was a contemporary of, of Billy Graham. Um, so a, gr a great evangelical leader, a scholar, a Bible teacher, a pastor, an evangelist. He was all of those things. But in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, it would be a mistake to suppose, however, that the biblical word righteousness means only a right relationship with God on the one hand and a moral righteousness of character and conduct on the other. For biblical righteousness is more than a private, personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. And social righteousness, as we learn from the law and the prophets, is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression, together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in home and family affairs. Thus, Christians are going to be committed to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to a righteous God. So this, this is a dimension, as I said, that has been oftentimes sort of neglected, overlooked, ignored um, by Bible-believing Christians. They haven't always, and, and I'm speaking of more recent times, like I said, but, but they've so focused on the personal aspect of righteousness, which of course is there and it's the foundation for everything else, but they've neglected to see quite often that it goes beyond that. That as we look around at an unrighteous world, as we look around at the injustices and things, we're not to simply say, oh, that's too bad, or that's unfortunate, or even worse, just ignore it because it doesn't relate to me. There should be in us a longing to see that change. We have seen that as the followers of Jesus, or, or what, what John Stott is talking about here, we have seen that historically as the followers of Jesus have led the way in so many of these things throughout most of history. Like I said, it's been a, a period of time, and, and I think in some ways it's, it's even been um, more a specific, uh, I wouldn't even say Western problem, more a specific um, American problem than any, any uh, other place where we've had this, this failure sometimes to see that there is a social component. And one of the reasons for that is because early on in the 20th century, there were people that you would call liberal in that they did not take the Bible at its word, they did not believe in the supernatural. They did not necessarily believe that the Bible really was the actual word of God. And they would deny certain things about the person of Christ. They would question like his virgin birth, for example. They would question whether there was literally a bodily resurrection and so forth. These became known as, as the liberal Christians and denominations and leaders. And they adopted because they thought that the, the mistake of 
of many Christians was to focus on the supernatural to the neglect of what was going on around them. So they took the focus off the supernatural and even denied the supernatural aspect of, of the Christian story in many ways. They thought that was a stumbling block. Oh, people are never going to believe that. We've just got to show them good works. And so what developed became known as the social gospel, which was concerned primarily with loving your neighbor and taking care of the major social issues. And so it was more than likely in a reaction to that, that the pendulum for true believers swung in the other direction. We don't want to have any association with this, this idea that denies the, the essence of, of the Christian message concerning the person of Jesus. We don't want to have any association with that. So there was a pulling away from uh, addressing the social issues and just a, a more of an internal focus on the spiritual life. But it wasn't the case for history prior to that, church history, and it, like I said, it wasn't the case everywhere. So the reality is that the followers of Jesus have led the way historically in care for the poor and marginalized, in the fight against slavery and human trafficking, in the fight for racial justice and equality, in the fight for the lives of the unborn and a myriad of other social causes. Historically, Christians have always led the way in these things. And even during this season where there's been a little more of a, of a neglect of this, Christians have still been probably the ones who have moved things forward in regard to so many of these things. So it's the longing, and this is this is where we go back to the hungering and thirsting. It's the longing to see things put right in the world that has led the followers of Jesus into advocacy and activism around these issues from the beginning of church history right up till today. Christians have always led the way. They've always led the way because as a Christian... Part of your very nature as a Christian is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to long to see things the way they ought to be. Now, here's the promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be filled. And again, let's just walk right back through those, the legal, the moral, and the social. So those who long for righteousness in the first sense are those who long for forgiveness and to be right with God, and they are filled when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. When a person comes to that place of looking at their own life and realizing, you know, I am not righteous, as a matter of fact, I am unrighteous, and oh, I long to be right with God. 
that is fulfilled as they receive Jesus. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness on that level, they shall be filled. They shall be filled through their faith in Christ. Those who long to be more holy and pleasing to God, to be more and more transformed into his image, that is happening as well. But that is a process. It's a process that we're all in the midst of. So, I've heard it said, and you, you've probably heard it said too, I'm, I'm not what I will be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. That's describing a process. We're not perfect. We're not sinless. We still have those longings to, oh, Gosh, if, I just wish that that area of my life, I just want to be freed from that. I want to get rid of that. I want to be beyond that. And there is a day, there is a day coming when that will be the case, when full uh, sanctification will have been accomplished. Full conformity into the image of Jesus. But right now, we are in a process. Listen to Paul's words to the Corinthians. I love this passage. He says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the spirit of the Lord. You see, this is what is happening to us. We, as we are seeking Jesus, as we are giving ourselves over to the pursuit of personal holiness, it is like we're beholding the face of the Lord in a mirror. And slowly but surely, we are looking more and more like him. That's what Paul is describing there. So keep seeking Jesus and know this, because remember, the promise is that you shall be Filled, know this, that one day you will be totally like him. As we hunger and thirst to see the world put right. And don't we hunger and thirst for that? We look at the world we live in, and it is just an absolute mess, isn't it? It's just a, a complete mess. And we look at it and we think, oh, Lord, how long? And, and when are these injustices going to be dealt with? When will this unrighteousness be taken away? We know that that will not fully happen until Jesus returns. So we know that. Although the kingdom has already come, it's not here in its fullness, and the church will never bring it in in its fullness. Jesus alone will bring it in in its fullness. But the church and where the people of God are has the 
possibility of bringing glimpses of the kingdom into the here and now as we hunger and thirst for righteousness and as we do those things that would make for righteousness. So it's only when Jesus returns that that hunger and thirst will be fully satiated. But even now, since the kingdom has in some sense arrived with the coming of Jesus, we can have little fillings here and there as we see injustice pushed back and righteousness prevail. See, we can have little fillings here and there in, in this regard. On the first level, we're totally filled through faith in Jesus. That, that longing for righteousness has been completely filled through faith in Jesus. Morally, we can sense that we are being filled because we're uh, going from glory to glory as we behold the face of the Lord. We're growing in him. We're becoming more like him. And in this area, we can have, like I'm saying, these sort of, you know, little fillings because we see through that longing for, for righteousness on the part of God's people that change is possible in society. And so we can think back over the centuries of, of the many places where the people of God, because of that hungering and thirsting for righteousness, as they've seen injustice, as, they, as they've seen unrighteousness, as, they, as they've seen the plight of uh, humans in sin, they have determined to do something about it. And so let's keep humbly pursuing righteousness and I say humbly because that's a key point in our pursuit of righteousness remember what I said a moment ago that in the in Jesus's day uh, the the broader culture of Rome despised humility and did not think at all that that was any way to make progress, any way to advance. If you're going to make any progress, if you're going to advance, if you're going to change anything, you're going to do it through the exercise of power. That was the Roman mentality. But guess what? Many of the Jews adopted the Roman mentality. They thought the exact same way. And that's one of the main reasons why they rejected Jesus, because Jesus didn't come with a power plan. He came with a different plan. And so we today, as we see injustice and things like that, as we see unrighteousness around us, we, by the grace of God and through the help of God and by the power of God that manifests itself quite often in a different fashion than human power, we can also see the changes. You think of the civil rights movement and the most well-known figure in the civil rights movement, probably to this very day, is Martin Luther King Jr., who was a Christian pastor. A lot of times people forget about that part of it. That's who he was. That's, that was his whole message. But what was his approach? His approach was one of peaceful demonstration, 
humbly, not trying to uh, exert power. Now, there are other people in the African-American community uh, at the time, other groups of people who did not like his approach. No, we need to raise our fist. We need to exercise power against this. But I think in him you see this, you see this, um, what we're talking about, humbly pursuing righteousness. And of course, that did prevail. I want to give you uh, one other example of this. William Wilberforce, some of us are familiar with that name. William Wilberforce was a, a, a British parliamentarian. Uh, he was first and foremost a Christian. And William Wilberforce, uh, more than any other name, was responsible for the, uh, both the end of the slave trade in 1807 and ultimately abolishing slavery in the British Empire uh, in 1833. But let me give you an example. This is such a great example of what Jesus is talking about when he says, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Listen to the words of Wilberforce. So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. Wow. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? That pretty much describes it right there. I will never rest. And you know, he never rested. For 40 plus years, he fought in the houses of parliament and in 1833, one week after slavery was abolished in the British Empire, primarily through his influence, he died and went to be with Jesus. For 40 plus years, he fought for righteousness. And this is what Christians do. And this is what Christians have done. And there's injustice and there's unrighteousness in our world today. And thank God there are people who have that same passion and they're fighting. They're fighting for the unborn. They're fighting for those who are uh, presently being trafficked and these kinds of real things that are uh, injustices in our culture. Wilberforce was empowered to do this because of his faith in Christ. He was a believer in the Lord Jesus. When I was in London a few, whatever it was, month or so ago, I guess, we went to this little church in the city of London where um, John Newton had become the leader of the church, a small Church of England church. John Newton, if you 
don't remember, he was a slave trader, a ship captain who was converted and wrote the song Amazing Grace. Wilberforce attended Newton's church and they would regularly gather and it's a very small church. This is a really interesting thing about it. It's a very small church. And it's the kind of place that you might walk by and just not even give a thought as to what might be going on in that small little church. But what was going on in that small little church was that the world was being changed. As these men sought the Lord and sought his strength and power to bring about righteousness in their day. And it was through the efforts of these people that millions of lives of formerly enslaved people were delivered. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But it all starts at that first level of being right with God. And I trust that that is the case for us here today, most of us. That's why we're here, because we have, uh, we've received that fullness. We've, we've come to know Christ. If it might happen that that hasn't yet taken place with you, and you sense in you that you don't have that, quality of righteousness that you know God requires, he gives that to you as a gift. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so if by chance you've not done that, today is a day where you can simply call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, forgive my sin and impart to me your righteousness. You know, as we finish up with communion this morning, I think this is a great moment as well for us who are in that place of, of um, sanctification. You know, sanctification is, uh, is describing the process of becoming, I like to say it, just becoming more like Jesus, being set apart for God. And this morning as we have before us the bread and the cup, you know, this is the moment when we have an opportunity to reflect on where we are and where we want to be, where we know the Lord wants us to be, and as we remember what Jesus did for us, and as we take the bread and the cup, we're saying, Lord, move me further along in that process. And he, of course, will do that. And it also might be a time of calling into other ways by which righteousness might be advanced. And the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts many times. You know, so many people that have been used in such significant ways historically by God received their call in a worship service.
They receive their call through a Bible teaching. They receive their call by coming to the table and having the Spirit of God speak to them. So let's open our hearts and allow the Lord to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for this bread and cup. And we pray as we share in it together today that you would work your work of righteousness in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.